there's a religious virtue in being a truth seeker and a truth teller. Maybe that needs to be counterbalanced with other virtues. Like, for example, in Jewish tradition, the value of peace and the value of compromise are posited as in tension with the value of truth. Hello, all. Welcome back for another episode of Courage Over Convention. Today, I'm here with a, a brilliant gentleman that I was introduced uh, through a mutual friend to. Uh, his name is Zohar Atkins. And before I even start here, I'd like to uh, point people to uh, Zohar's work. His name again, Z-O-H-A-R-A-T-K-I-N-S. And he has a fabulous substack called What is Called Thinking. Definitely check it out. Read a few articles. You'll, you'll be sure to subscribe if you do. Today, we wanted to uh, just get into whatever issues kind of kind of arise and, and, and dig deep, sort of the Socratic search for truth, so to speak. But uh, Zohar, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Woody. Yeah, it's a, it's a real pleasure, man. I, Stuart sent me your, your Substack af- after I uh, listened to your conversation with him on uh, on Crazy Wisdom. A tremendous, uh, tremendous episode there. I guess I wanted to kick it off with a broad question. How in the world did you, <laughs> did you come to uh, right in such a, uh, unique voice, uh, sort of using, using, uh, sort of, uh, Jewish theology as a lens or, or as a conduit to, uh, analyze the present and, uh, and, and sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, find, find truth in the madness today. But what was that, what was that path? What, what inspired that, that methodology? Brilliant question. Uh, honored by it. So in some ways, what I'm doing is very classical and not new. And in other ways, it is new. I'll tell you the ways in which I think it's classic. There's a style of Jewish commentary called Midrash, which is really old. Um, It's probably an oral form. And I'd say it's at least 2000 years old. And Midrash is about finding gaps in any text, but particularly in biblical texts. and then raising questions about those gaps. A gap could be a detail that's missing. A gap could be a moral question that's not addressed. Um, For example, it says Cain spoke to Abel in Genesis chapter four, and then it doesn't say what Cain said to Abel. And it says, and Cain rose up and killed Abel. So what were they talking about? Midrash speculates about the nature of those conversations. Um, If a word is repeated, if a phrase is repeated multiple times in a given chapter, those details are held by some commentators to be significant and thus they need to be parsed. There's a uh, a style of hermeneutics, which is uh, the science or art of interpretation, which posits that um, every letter in the Bible is omnisignificant, meaning there's no detail that isn't placed there by God or someone divinely inspired in order for you to make sense of it. And sometimes it takes a generation or 10 generations to even find that detail or come up with a good answer to it. So what I'm trying to say there is... We're longer, right? (laughs) Exactly. Already, I think like Judaism, and not only Judaism, has a very rich interpretive tradition. Uh, I would say core to Jewish theology is the idea that you don't take things at face value, but you wrestle with them and you challenge them. And that's that's a textual thing, but it's also a, a spiritual thing. So like Abraham argues with God on behalf of the sinners of Sodom and Gomorrah. Moses tells God, don't destroy the people. Um, if you're going to do that, you have to take me out of the book as well. 
um, many of the prophets um, have the audacity, like, for example, Jeremiah to, or Job, to say to God, you know, why are you abandoning me? Why are you doing this to me? Some of them even go so far as to tell God, hey, you know, kill me, um, which is pretty dark if you actually think about it. But in the biblical context, saying to God, like, hey, kill me, um, isn't just guilt tripping God. It's saying, um, I want to quit. Right. And so there's a tradition of talking back to God. And one of the ways that that is done classically is by reading the text against the grain and saying, maybe the text looks like it's saying X, but what if it was actually saying Y? Yeah. And of course, you get that then in secular forms of philosophy and Marx and Freud, um, where again, like nothing is taken at face value. And, you know, you think that um, the story is just what the conscious mind says, for example, in Freud, but actually there's a whole unconscious. So, um, so in that sense, I'm very classical. But at the same time, I think the desire to connect commentary of scripture, commentary of philosophy to everyday phenomena, that is a very modern or postmodern turn. And for me, my name is Zohar, which is the name of a mystical book. And if I had to sort of summarize this idea, um, it's a much longer conversation. I would say um, mysticism is the is the view that the entire world is a text. And so, if the ancient my name doesn't my name doesn't carry that much metaphoric <laughs> weight, but uh, go on. <laughs> so I think right, the ancients would say, "Why is this letter placed here? Why is this word placed here?" And then, what a modern anthropologist or sociologist is trying to do is almost ask that, but instead of asking that about scripture, asking that about worldly phenomena, like why is the font on this awning sans serif with the same reverence right. that, that an ancient was applying to a scriptural text? I think, I, I think uh, Judaism, uh, apart from just being a, a beautiful faith uh, structure in and of itself, um, a lot of the um, downstream effects of, of some of the things you talked about, the, the sort of the, um, the cultural norms of pushing back, of uh, of engaging in, in sort of uh, constant discussion over ancient scriptures. I, I, there's there's so much fruit that is born from that. And I, I just think it's it's such a healthy, um, you know, my, my best buddy is is uh, is Jewish. And um, I just just from day one, uh, it, sort of the style of parenting with him and 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 his growth as a person, it was always kind of back to first principles thinking from a young age. I just watched the, the kid grow up and, and now he's a uh, just tremendously successful dude and, and an awesome guy. But I I just have a great reverence for the Jewish faith. It's sort of you were you have this this great um this great uh, piece uh, called Cloudy Modernity. And you talked about sort of the the cloud pillars, you know, being a being a conduit, being a a shaman for the heroic path, um, as opposed to the much tidier narratives uh present in the, the Christian faith structures and and the like. Has that informed uh, a lot of your kind of intellectual growth and spiritual growth in a way? The the ambiguity, the um, the the lack of a defined, tidy narrative. I just love I just love that because I'm I believe in the cosmic mystery. I, I find beauty in the cosmic mystery as opposed to the 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 lawgiver. You know the 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 deity that is the the universal lawgiver. I mean, t tell me about that. Is did that really? um help help you on your journey to become as intellectually um and, and as well read as you are i do think i'm comfortable with ambiguity it's difficult to explain 
yeah. the origins of that yeah. comfort. In other words, I don't I don't really think ambiguity or doubt are obstacles that I necessarily that I necessarily want to overcome in you know and and for me it's not it's not about I still have conviction even though I have ambiguity and doubt so that's the weird thing that's hard to put into words yeah yeah there's a there's sort of a a strange balancing act that I too have being sort of profoundly agnostic but also sort of having a, a profound acceptance there's some cognitive dissonance that I think is acceptable when you're when you're dealing mm-hmm. with with something uh, these complex topics it's it's said in the rabbinic tradition that God's seal um a seal being like the thing that a king would put on the letter or you know to to prove that that letter was authentic this is nice. before block blockchain um <laughs> God, bit, God, yeah. God's seal is truth and literally the word for truth in Hebrew is emet um you, you might know the name emet um so emet is God's seal meaning if you would just see the word truth that that is supposed to be it, as if the the trace of God's presence in the world, and I think that's a very powerful image for a couple of reasons. One is, um, it's the seal of God; it's not God, so it's right. the trace, right? You don't actually get God by getting the truth, but there's some implication that if you pursue the truth, that will take you to God. And there's a phrase um, from, I think David Hartman, who's a rabbi said, you know, the God who hates lies. Um, I think like if you're authentically pursuing truth that it leads you to atheism, you know, I personally disagree with that conclusion, but I think God would rather you pursue truth and come to that conclusion than, you know, to self-deceive or to say, yeah, I'm going to believe in God just because I think, um, I mean, I don't know if I would entirely stand by that, but I think like there's a religious virtue in being a truth seeker and a truth teller. Maybe that needs to be counterbalanced with other virtues. Like for example, in Jewish tradition, the value of peace and the value of compromise are posited as in tension with the value of truth. And so for example, um, God tells Abraham that Sarah said that she um, was too old to have children even though the text doesn't say that the text says that Sarah says that Abraham is too old to have children. And so the commentary picks up on that subtle shift and says, why did God lie? Um, And the answer is, well, he was trying to maintain marital peace between Abraham and Sarah, and you're allowed to lie for the sake of peace. I wanted to, I wanted to move on and and ask you, are philosophers normal? Um, It's another (laughs) great piece you wrote. And I love what you said about, being viewed from without versus viewed from within. And uh, I loved your sort of implicit metaphor or uh, sim- simile rather, or goodness gracious, an- analogies. Uh, theologi- uh, so I'll just say it. Uh, theological election is to anti-Semitism as philosophical election is to misosophy. Uh, 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 I've, I've written that word. I, I've never said it, um, which, which, which comes through here. But so I, I love to the final quote, owning the philosophical election, and this is paraphrasing, may yield greater integration than a, a pseudo hospitality, which sort of flattens the difference between the philosophical and the normal life. This so resonated with me because to live a an examined life, philosophical life, to take the time to absorb these these old texts and and drill down and learn hu- just humanities. 
this stuff is time intensive. It's incredibly difficult. That brings me to 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 another uh, bit, bit you said about, uh, and, and I think this is in your conversation with Stuart, where you talk about philosophy and how it may be alienating in its vernacular and how that's not all bad. You know, I, I come from the finance realm, <laughs> investing in finance, talk about freaking alienating vernacular. I mean, a lot of it is marketing, but it's not not to the people that are actually engaging. If you look at FinTwit, you know, uh, this community that I engage in frequently, these these terms are used that are just incredibly alienating to somebody that's not of that ilk. Um, and but what's your favorite? What's your favorite alienating FinTwit term? Oh my goodness, <laughs> I like a lot of the. Um, there, my my favorite sort of investor of all time is Jerry Parker, and and he talks about this this trend following approaches, and you know he's always saying stuff like uh, you got to wear loose pants. He doesn't talk like that, but that's how I hear it. You got <laughs> to wear loose pants, and that just means yeah, you have to be willing to to see your your open your open profits in a position fall to zero without intervening and just let your system run and it produces much more robust results over the long term anyway so i there, there's there's a ton of them I, I, it's going to make me nauseous if i say too many uh, <laughs> but uh yeah i mean a, a lot of the uh it, you know the four percent rule it, that's a, that's a cognitive here it no it's a meme you know this four percent mm-hmm. rule in retirement what is that based on uh, you, you can't possibly know. This is a complex adaptive system, a type two complex adaptive system that we're all living in and swimming is, in. What's four percent? You want to you want to um, yeah, spend four so percent every pulling, year? Or? Pulling four percent from your retirement account is sort of what everyone optimizes to do. And there's a million awesome you know uh, debunks uh, written by Corey Hofstein. <laughs> And a lot of thought leaders in the space, we bring a quant mindset to it. And they're like, what the, what the hell is this? Um, you know, it, it, 4%, you know, if you had pulled 4% every year in the 70s when you were holding yeah. bonds and we had hyper, almost hyperinflation, uh, you'd be, you'd, you wouldn't be wearing a shirt after a few years, you know? So it's just, you, you don't know what's coming. And that's why I love, I just, I love yeah. your, your seeming embrace of, of sort of the cloud pillar as a guiding force mm. and the ambiguity present in everyday life i think it's beautiful i want to defend the four percent meme actually as a metaphor so i think probably from a quant perspective you can debunk a lot of these rules of thumb but the the rule of thumb doesn't exist for the for the elite quant person it exists for the um for the average person who the counterfactual is what would they do without that rule of thumb they've they'd withdraw 20 percent you're right. Um, You're right. And so and narratives sell, right? I mean, I, memes yeah. sell and they can be helpful. I think the same is true in religion there, and, and in philosophy. There's a spectrum of use cases and a lot of confusion happens when you mistake the sort of median user of religion or philosophy from yep. the elite user. Yep. if you will. Yep. I, I take a democratic approach in, in the in this in the old school sense of I think religion is for everyone. Um, I think philosophy is for everyone, but I don't think in the same way. Right, right, right. Which is an interesting distinction that 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 I'd love to flush out. And, and real quick, just just back to just owning the, the philosophical election. I thought that was so beautiful, but it made me think about people who don't have the luxury 
to engage in the sorts of conversation we're having at, at present. You know, these these uh or, or or to or to read your Substack, which I mean it's tremendously valuable. It's beyond valuable. It, it in fact it's so critical in today's day and age that we understand we we revisit philosophy and and consume the old texts. And because if we don't have an understanding of the human condition and of our own values and 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 value structures, the software engineers in Silicon Valley are going to write a force essentially through nudges and and the like, right? I mean, they they they're they're geniuses that garner attention. And as we become a more secular society, and I'll shut up in a minute, but as we become become a more secular society, so much has been lost, uh, in my opinion. Um, you know, in terms of these the the rituals, the community building, to your point about the four percent um, uh, rule, you know. People kind of need these digestible, they can be fallacious at base, but digestible, positive nudges towards um, good behavior and virtuous behavior. So uh, and, and and so the market swoops into the void and says, we got gotcha. you. You know, we got we got these platforms where everyone's, you know, both a performer and an audience member. And we get your dopamine cycles going, baby. Um, and. You know, oh, I got 30 likes this time. Oh, man, now my hedonistic barometer is reset. I got to get 50 the next. So uh, let me write something really angry about Trump or Hillary's servers or something. Can philosophy fill that void for a lot of people who are much more secular minded like myself? Again, I'm, I'm, I'm agnostic, which fine line between atheism and agnosticism. I agree with you. I think agnostic, I mean, atheism is a faith structure in and of itself to, to, to apply nothingness to something that is uh, just confounding and completely unknown is just as absurd as, as saying there's a purple hippopotamus on a surfboard, you know, that controls everything. So oh, I, I don't know, that was a long winded ramble, but I'm excited to talk to you. So uh, that happens sometimes I flap my gums. So what do you think about that? I resonate with the question. You know, Heidegger said, we're too late for the gods, too early for being which very poetically, I think, describes something of this in-betweenness that you're, that you're getting at, which is, okay, so once upon a time, people were pagan, people were religious. Um, now we've gone the opposite swing, we're disenchanted. There's no going back to the gods or God, right? We're too late for the gods, but we're too early for being. Being, being kind of this modern or postmodern gesture at a sense of the sacred, a sense of transcendence, that isn't beholden to the metaphysical errors of the past. Right. 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 So this is like, okay, yeah, maybe the ancients, they were, they were over-indexed on meaningfulness and under-indexed on self-critique. Sure. Um, on the well scientific said. method. And now we've swung towards skepticism of everything, skepticism of authority, innocent, uh, guilty until proven innocent, um, et cetera. And then that's bringing us to a place of nihilism uh, for those who don't have religion, who don't have dogmatism. And so I think the question is like for those in the sacred center in the middle of the diagram who don't resonate with disbelieve this and I'm a fundamentalist, but they're not necessarily drinking the Kool-Aid of scientific materialism either. Like, where do you go? And I think there's probably going to be, and there are thousands of different yeah. <laughs> micro solutions to that, some more nefarious than others. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I, I had hit you with a tough question, you know, uh, how to sort of a self-help, <laughs> self-help for everyone. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's no blanket prescription. You're hundred percent right. You know, I, I love, despite his uh, 
you know, awful um, character flaws, uh, Heidegger as well. Well, I, I love his work, I should say. And um, and certainly Socrates, who you mentioned as your top two kind of homies. Um, I, I, I broke my neck nodding in agreement when you were talking about Socrates and the Socratic sort of method. Yeah, it may it, it may yield more questions than answers, but it, it's sort of the journey of talking to someone, you know, him not writing anything down. That's why I love Adler as well. You know, Adlerian psychology. I mean, you guy didn't write anything down. I don't know. I, 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 I find that these sorts of conversations, they're just not happening today. You know, it's it's too nuanced. It's too um, opaque for many people. And it's it. And again, it, it the time impoverished in wealth disparity in this country. It's crazy. You know, the company that we're in, it's Saudi Arabia and, and places like this where wealth disparity is off the off the map. It, it's a passion of mine. So I'll get off mm. this quick, but I relate it to time poverty. And if you can't compound wealth, especially as a millennial, you know, millennials, and I, I think you're around my age, um, millennials have 12% of the net wealth in the US. And yet I've got gray hair, you know, uh, we're in our prime working years and baby boomers still have about 54% of the net wealth. So to me, that spells disaster on on sort of an economic front but we won't get into that garbage really the problem to me is this i i I feel like everyone should be doing this all the time because (laughs) because this sort of conversation around because you got to know thyself you know uh, it's the most important thing How, how can we how can we go forward into the void here with all this disruption and 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 do you do you think philosophy has a grounding sort of a a gravitational pull to center people? I'm not sure that wealth disparity is the main driver of disparity in philosophical reflection. Um, I don't have data on this, but in my, in my anecdotal or anecdotal phenomenological drive-by view, the main driver of lack of reflectiveness is culture rather than economics. And um, I think specifically around, and I think it's a transgenerational issue, not a generational one. I think it has to do with where do people spend their free time and what is free time? I think that um, the nature of work has made it much more ambiguous when time off is. Um, For example, remote work, you're no longer leaving the office. Um, but also just the nature of a 24-7 news cycle, social media, et cetera, has totally corroded our boundaries. And so that, and and then the, the emphasis on turning yourself into a personal brand has also made it so that it's not really clear when you're posting photos of yourself on vacation, right. for example, highly, is, highly, that, yeah, is, that, is that leisure or is that work? Yeah. The work of marketing and self-promotion. Um, etc. So um, from from my point of view, like a person puts in their time and then they're in their free time, they're watching Netflix or they're playing video games or they're scrolling Twitter, Instagram. That's the cause. Um, I, do, I think the wealthy are also doing that. Um, sure, sure. <laughs> and then those who have the privilege to go to college, um, even good colleges, are feeling that economic pressure. Um, even if they come from upper middle class homes to study something quote unquote useful like engineering, um, 
in order to keep up with the Joneses, which like fair enough. So that is an economic driver, but I think it also has to do with the esteem that we give to certain kinds of professions relative to others. And the humanities haven't really done themselves too many favors in this front. Um, Because I think for all that STEM has pushed towards optimization, humanities has dug its heels in, in kind of a like Luddite position. Um, And so that's not really tenable. So in other words, I think the picture is super complicated um, as to why there isn't a great amount of reflect reflection or self-reflection in the culture. Um, but that being said, um, I'm sort of, I'm still optimistic because I think that with the decline of gatekeeping and with the amount of knowledge and information that is on the web, on Substack, on YouTube, on Twitter, um, there's a lot more opportunity for people who are motivated to go and find community and find inspiration. You don't, you no longer have to go to Harvard to get access to the a Harvard PhD. You can be self-taught. Right. Right. No, that's, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I think I'm, I think where I'm coming from is simply, I think, I think you're right. The, the ex- external influences, which in many ways I would argue are caused by the wealth disparity in these uh, massively overscaled social me- social media platforms that are um, kind of reducing attention spans, offering um, uh, escape hatches for escapism. Um, that I, I think much is caused by a loss of agency and a loss of novelty in work for younger people. But um, nonetheless, it's that maybe that's a topic for another podcast because I want I want to get on with uh, some other interesting things you said. I'm a big fan of David Krakauer and Cognitive Artifacts, the Santa Fe Institute um, uh, scholar. Uh, he's done a lot of work in that space. And he kind of talks about, you know, the calculator being, you know, uh, or the map uh, or GPS. You know, GPS and cars being sort of a competitive cognitive artifact. And for the listener, that's uh, it, it, sort of taking efficacy away from humans, uh, eliminating efficacy for humans in one space, uh, i.e. walking, uh, riding a bike, um, and giving it up for the convenience of a car. Um, And there's so many, the brain runs on redundancies. So there's so many sort of cross-functional attributes of the brain that atrophy when you eliminate cursive in schools. You know, they're not teaching. I'm kidding me. I'm going to teach my daughter cursive. Like, uh, yeah, there, I think there's tremendous um, benefits to it beyond just writing in cursive. Um, and I kind of feel as if this AI boom that we're seeing and the novelty and, and <clears throat> the lightning rod that is ChatGPT, sure, there's some productivity gains because a lot of jobs are mundane and, and um, again, no agency or whatever. But the loss of writing, uh, do you see that as a real existential threat to heightened awareness? Uh, among the populace i feel like we've already lost literacy um for you know two or three decades at least like we're already an auto visual culture more than we are a literary one if anything large learning large language models are perhaps going to bring back esteem for the written word um like it's interesting that GPT is of all the AI tools has been the one that's gone the most viral. I would say I have experimented with Midjourney and Dolly. Um, maybe wow. it's because I'm not a 
like a visual person I'm more of a word person but like it hasn't impressed me that much um compared to what GPT hasn't like I'm pretty amazed at oh it's it's potential it's it's ridiculous yeah so I think like any tool the question is gonna is is sort of how you use it and how you relate to it and what you expect from it and of course the the alphas and the prompt engineering yeah um right just like just like with chess um when they had the ai learning chess the the alpha switched (laughs) from memorizing sequences to knowing what to you know what questions to ask the algorithm it's alpha go versus uh watson you know it's uh, it's 100 right i'm incredibly um well probably can't see my bookshelf but the philosophy of neuroscience to me is incredibly interesting i know you're Man, your depth of knowledge in in the classics in terms of philosophy, uh, very impressive. But um, I'm interested to know: are, is is that a field that you're all at all interested in, like the philosophy of neuroscience or any of the any of the thinkers in that space? I haven't really read much in philosophy of neuroscience. I took a neuroscience class at Brown as an undergrad and dropped after a month um, because I couldn't memorize the diagrams. Like you just, if you take a photo of the brain and then you flip the orientation, like my, my mind just breaks. Trying to, it's like hard enough just to, just to hold it still. And then you're like, wait, what if you did the lateral position? Um, it looks sort of like gray oatmeal to me. So I'll, I'll admit like basically technical you know, ignorance on, on sure. neuroscience in, in, in great detail. Of course, I, I do follow the the sort of uh, pop pop studies of like, oh, they, they hooked up some Buddhist monks to a, you know, MRI. And it turns out this part of the brain like lights up when they meditate or whatever. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, thanks for that. I didn't know. Um, <laughs> right. So I, I right or like science, science says that going for a walk um decreases stress what? What? <laughs> so revolutionary oh my um, god so i don't i don't want to diminish the field because i'm i know that there are like applications that are quite profound but that is kind of that perhaps because i'm not technical yeah. um my my attitude is one of like most of what the science says type people come up with is stuff that philosophy and religion already and common sense already oh. knows and knows better. No, I agree. Um, I, agree. I, I think my, 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 and I don't need a brain scan to, to sort of legitimate it. So no, I sure. think that's my methodological yeah. critique is like the conflation of the brain with the mind or the presumption that, you know, what consciousness is oh, yeah. you know yeah. part of the brain light up in response to something. Sure. I, I'm, I, I'm, I work some simpatico on that. I think my, my interest lies more in sort of, uh, you, you you wrote something um, far more articulate than what I'm about to spill out, but it, it 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 had to do with the worthwhile pursuit of something that is mm. seemingly um, you could you can never reach the apex of the mountain. You know, you it's still worthwhile to pursue it. And, and so, to me, the philosophy of neuroscience, looking into qualia and and what and free will and the nature of free will, that's really where where I'm driven towards because. You know, we all think of ourselves as these agents of of volition and uh, uh, controllers of our own destiny. When in fact, I think much of it is an an adaptive illusion, uh, illusion. Um, but uh, maybe not all of it. I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm agnostic on it. But I, I'm just curious because you know, David Hume is my, happens to be my favorite philosopher, and um, you know, he's a more meat and potatoes guy than than I'm sure some of the folks that you 
that you, that you really dig. But but you know he's he's a compatibilist, meaning he's at once a determinist. You know everything is causal um, in terms of your decision making process and 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 how you your free will is is an illusion based on hereditary imports, cultural imports, your own reality tunnel, so on and so forth, your hormonal situation during the event. Um, <clears throat> but he leaves room for free will, uh, David here. And, and I, once again, I'm right there with him. I'm like, you know, yeah, you, we haven't answered all the questions. So that's kind of why I, I, I touch on that a little bit. I don't know. Any humor you want. I have, I have two types of response. So one is, um, I'm personally more interested in the being who asks these questions than in the findings that that being produces. That's kind of Heidegger's approach, right? Is, yep. okay, Dasein, existence, studies neuroscience. It thinks that if it comes up with some theory of consciousness, that that's salient to it. Why? I'm more interested in that qualitative description of like, why are we doing this project? And what are yep. we hoping to get out of it? And what are our assumptions in terms of um, our, our a priori commitment to the method? Uh, what does that say about us rather than just taking the method as like, oh yeah, this is just the right method and the answers are the right answers. Um, so that's the first point. On the second point is on free will. Um, so as a religious person, like my tradition very much believes in free will. It's kind of like a cornerstone of it's a fulcrum on which, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a cornerstone of the religion, which is like God created human being to be a creator and to be a chooser of good rather than evil and to look at the world and say, you know, how can I make it different? How can I make it better? How can I overcome my own vices and temptations? And, um, you know, what do I see that nobody else sees? And, and in Peter Thiel's terms, like go from zero to one. Like, I just, you know what I mean? Like, I, I think innovation, um, technological breakthrough, but also just saintliness and general heroism, like all of those come from a very powerful place. And my tradition thinks of that in terms of something like a free will. Now, it's not like free in the sense of unconstrained or like from the ground up as if by magic. I think it's definitely responsive. Um, you're informed by your culture, by your upbringing, by your education. Um, you can be summoned to an obligation by uh by the society by god so free will doesn't mean that you're in a vacuum but it just means that presented with all of that like as victor frankl says between the the stimulus and the response there's a gap and in that gap is a choice um yep. and that's what meditation and prayer and you know religious practice are trying to get you to be come more attuned to is that is that gap in that space and yes it is mysterious and it deconstructs agency but that doesn't mean there's no meaning to a moral act no um, no and i that's certainly i yeah i agree with you there and i i don't i don't think there's an i yeah. i don't think they're mutually exclusive uh, sure i don't think reduction in agency necessarily okay yeah but, i agree so then I'm, the so then the third point on this is like maybe this will be fun for you as a finance person but i sometimes think of it in, in terms of portfolio theory where um we'll do the 80 20 first so like Maybe 80% of the time or 80% of the portfolio of moments in your life, you're on autopilot and you're really not free. Um, and that's where neuroscience and cognitive science and psychology and, you know, science more generally can accurately describe um, the ups and downs of your life 
with quite good accuracy, but the 20% is responsible for 80% of your returns. And that's where the heroism is. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, uh, that's very well said. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll let you go there, but Zohar, before I do, uh, first off, I, I didn't get through 20% of the questions I, I had for you. Um, I, I, I read almost, I'd say 80% of your Substack writings um and they're all beautiful and um please keep keep putting that stuff out there uh can can you give listeners a a sense for where they can find your work uh you know and get access to to your to your awesome noggin thank you so i have a website zoharakins.com where you can find a lot of this uh directory stuff um i've got uh two substacks one is called what is called thinking so it's what is called thinking.substack.com you must subscribe to that by the way <laughs> thank you Woody. and then i write a weekly bible commentary um it's asada uh, e-t-z-h-a-s-a-d-e-h which means tree of the field and then i do a podcast as well meditations with zohar hey uh zohar real pleasure um you're i i can tell you're just uh you're a truth seeker and a good man um and uh yeah please uh please keep doing what you're doing man <laughs> appreciate it buddy thanks for having me on great yeah. conversation all right take care i can't feed on the powerless when my cup's already over filled.